So Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, hear the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired came, first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the popular slogans of the labor movement combined with a kind of civil rights movement has been equal pay for equal work. I'm sure you've heard that, equal pay for equal work. And to this day, you can find publications which talk about same job where one person, uh, maybe it's a woman, uh, makes less than the man. That's often the, the difficulty or from some uh, ethnic group makes less than the same person from another ethnic group doing the same sort of job. Now, uh, this, is, this slogan appeals to our sense of fair play. And now, it's, it's, of course, it's, it's impossible to institute these things because market forces are the forces that determine wages more than legislation. And yet, at the same time, this slogan, it, it, it appeals to us as, as essentially fair. If, if two different persons do the same work, it seems fair to us that they should get the same results, that they should receive the same sort of pay. Now, um, if this, this sense of fairness is, is built into us, then we are ideal hearers of this parable because it, it depends on that sort of sense about equal pay and equal work. Now, before we look at the parable, it's interesting, interesting to see the frame here because it's fascinating to compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, uh, there are different ideas about which was first and, and which came after that, but what we find if we compare Mark and Matthew, we find that this is not in Mark. And what, what Matthew did is he inserted this at a certain place in Mark. And everything is the same going up to that, but then he inserts this and then he continues on. Now, he inserts it at an interesting place in Mark. In Mark chapter 10, verse 31, we have this statement. The last will be first, 
and the first will be last, or the other way around. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Now notice, look at Matthew. Look at verse 30 of chapter 19. What does it say? But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then look at chapter 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. So what did, what did Matthew do? He took that, and he, he repeated it. So he makes it the introduction, and he makes it the conclusion, and he inserts this parable in the middle. Now that's helpful, because it gives us an idea, a clue about what this parable is going to be about, because it's framed with this same statement. It's going to be about some sort of a reversal in the kingdom, something that's going to be backwards from our way of thinking a reversal of the expected order or the conventional order of things as we suppose they should be. Now, also, the context here prepares us for a reversal because the previous two incidents, both in Mark and in Matthew, are children. Children coming to Jesus and being shooed away by the disciples and Jesus saying, no, 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 let them come because the kingdom of God belongs to these, the little ones, the non-influential ones, the unimportant ones, the weak ones. The kingdom of God belongs to them. And then who shows up next? The rich young man. The rich young man who was admirable in his adherence to the law. He had given his life to obeying God's law. And how does he end up? Jesus sends him away, and he goes away sad, not a part of the kingdom. So so things are backwards here in this chapter to our way of thinking, and then we have this parable. Now, this is the fifth, the fifth of six times in Matthew, where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a man. The kingdom of God is like a man. He compares it to other things as well, but there's six times where he says the kingdom of God is like a man. One time, it was a man who sowed seeds. We already saw that. Another time, it was a man who was a merchant. We saw that. Uh, uh, twice in chapter 15 and in, here in this, in this parable, it's a man who is the master of the house. And then twice, he's compared to a man who is a king. In this chapter, in verse 23, and then at the end, toward the end in chapter 22, verse 2. So here once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a man, a master of the house. Now, what does this master do? The story is that he hired day laborers for his vineyard. These were men who were in the marketplace. They apparently didn't have steady work. They were waiting to get hired. And they were day laborers. Now, it was presumably, it doesn't say this, but it was presumably during harvest time. Why? Because two things. One, it was a 12-hour day. A 12-hour day. That wasn't normal. It was a 12-hour day. And also, he seemed to be very anxious to get as many workers as he could. So it looks like it is harvest time for the grapes. The first group... Let's say he hired them at 6 a.m. So they would work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. He hired them at 6 a.m. and he agreed with them for a denarius. Now that was a Roman coin, but it was a common coin and it, it seems to have been a common wage for one day's work. And so he agreed with them a fair wage for the day. And then he kept looking. He goes back to the market and he finds that there were other groups. 
So he finds a second group in verses 3 and 4. And that second group, let's say it was about 9 a.m., three hours later. And he didn't say what he would pay them, but he said, you go and work and I will pay you what is right or just or fair. And then he goes out again and he hired some more at noon and he hired more at 3 p.m. And it says he did the same thing with them, so it looks like he said the same thing to them. That is, you go work and, and I'll, hire, I'll pay you what is fair at the end of the day. Then finally, he goes at 5 p.m., let's say, and uh, he, he finds some who are there in verses 6 and 7. 11th hour, 11th hour of the 12-hour workday, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, he kind of reproached them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they gave a very common sense answer, because nobody hired us. Now, they, they must have shown up late, Maybe they had their own harvest to deal with in their own little plot. We don't know, but, but they, nobody hired us. And so he takes that as an answer, and he says, okay, you go into my vineyard as well. So far, so good. He's hired all these different groups, five different groups at five different times of the day. And then pay time comes. End of the day, pay time. And then the master ordered the foreman to pay them in reverse order. Look at verse 8. It says, when evening came... The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and up to the first. So he has introduced here two very important words, last and first. And we find these words in the introduction in, at the end of chapter 19 and in the conclusion, last and first. And here they're introduced into the parable. And notice something interesting. Who disappears from the story at this point? The other three groups, the other three groups, and the focus is now on the extremes, the last and the first. And what he says to the foreman is, pay them. Now, he doesn't say how much to pay them, but it looks like it is very definitely the, the master's instruction to pay them all the same, or at least the first and the last the same. We're assuming that he paid the middle ones the same as well, but they fall out of the story. So, verse 9, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And I'm sure they were surprised and thrilled with that. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And, understandably, they made their complaint known to the master. They grumbled. Receiving it, verse 11, they grumbled at the master of the house. And then they presented a, a pretty compelling argument against this equal pay for unequal work. Verse 12, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That's a pretty compelling argument, isn't it? They worked 12 times as much as that last group, and they bore the brunt of the labor and the most scorching hours of the day. A pretty compelling argument. So how does the master respond? And here we have an explanation that the master gave of the pay, and this is going to help us to start trying to understand what's going on with this parable. In verse 12, um, the, the master, rather, in verse 13, he replied to one of them. We don't know if this was the spokesman, but the group was grumbling 
but he replied to one of them. And he, he says to him, friend. He calls him friend, which was a courteous way of, he didn't know his name, of, of addressing him. He says, friend, first thing he says, I am doing you no wrong. And then he reminds him. He says, didn't we have an agreement? Didn't you agree to work for one denarius? And I paid you one denarius. So I have not done anything wrong. I have not been unfair to you. And then he said, take what belongs to you, that is rightly yours, and go. He dismissed him. And then he said this, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. So what's he saying? I have a right to do what I want with my possessions. Verse 15, he, he doubles down on that. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So he is, he is emphasizing his sovereign control over his possessions. And he can give them however he wants to give them. Now, he furthermore pointed out to the man that his real objection was not an objection to unfairness. It was an objection to generosity. He said, he pointed out, look, I have not been unfair with you. And they had to agree that he was not unfair with them. He had done them no wrong. They were objecting. At the heart of it, they were objecting to his generosity with other people. And so he asks them this question, or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, it's an interesting, interesting expression, and there is a footnote here, and the, the footnote says the literal translation is this. Is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? Am good. And this idea of the evil eye is probably referring to envy. Do you, do you look with envy on others because I am good to them? And he's pointing out the, the basic objection here is to generosity. And their basic problem is not that they were being fair and he was being unfair. They were being envious because he had been good to other people. And they, they didn't like that, that he had been good to others. So what's the basic message of this parable? And by the way, this parable is not an easy parable. Maybe none of the parables are easy. They're parables. And we've seen that, that parables are like, are like riddles. They're, they're puzzles. And it's, it's hard to figure them out. And, and we want to be careful in our interpretation. But this seems to have various ideas that are wrapped up here. It looks like the basic message is this. When we drop the, the parable language and we apply it to God, um, God is free to give the benefits of his kingdom to whomever he wishes and in whatever measure he wishes. He is free to do that. Why? It is his kingdom. They are his benefits. He can give them out however he wants to give them. He has that sovereign right. It looks like there are other, some other implicit lessons in here as well. One is this, and that is that those who are in the kingdom work to expand it. Those who are in the kingdom work to expand it. He sends them into his vineyard to do what? To work. 
So work is part of being in the kingdom, and it's interesting that, that if we're right about that this is harvest time, that they are sent into the, the field, the, the vineyard, to harvest the, the vineyard, harvest the grapes. And so, so that seems to be an implicit lesson here as well. And if that's the case, if that's the case that, that work is part of being in the kingdom of God, then we should not be resentful and we should not be envious if others' work seems to be less burdensome than our own. You see, that's, that's easy to do. We've been assigned our place in the kingdom, and we have our work to do in the kingdom, and we have this tendency to say, well, what about, what about so-and-so? Why is his place in the kingdom, it seems so much easier to me and so much more, more blessed than mine? Why, why my part in the kingdom? And so it's saying, don't, don't be envious. You've been assigned your role in the kingdom to work. You keep your eyes on what you have been assigned to do. Don't be envious of someone else's role in the kingdom. There also appears to be a message here about there being a resultant equality among all those who are in the kingdom. Now, we need to be careful because there are other verses that, that talk about rewards that are according to one's labor. But, but sticking with this parable, this parable emphasizes that there is a resulting equality for everybody who is in the kingdom of God. And if we think about it from one angle, we see that it's obvious. If you think about some of the benefits of the kingdom, they're either yes or no. Like you have them or you don't have them. You, everybody who has them is equal in having them. And everybody who doesn't have them is equal in not having them. They're not more or less. For example, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. In the kingdom of God, are, are some people's most of their sins forgiven? And then other people, some of their sins forgiven? And then others, a few of their sins forgiven? And others, all of their sins forgiven? No. If you're in the kingdom of God, it's forgiveness for everybody. It's, it's, it's equal for everybody. We can think of a number of, a number of uh, benefits of the kingdom. Adoption. Adoption is God's children. Either you are or you're not. It's, it's, you, you can't be a sort of son or daughter of God. You, you either are or you're not. And if you are a child, you are a child. And, and, and we understand that in our families, if we have more than one child, which one is more important? Come on. Which one is more a child? Neither. They're both. They're equal. And so there is equality. If uh, the temples of the Holy Spirit, are, are some people sort of temples of the Holy Spirit and other people are, 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 are real temples and other people, there's no way to, to, to make this unequal. These, these benefits are given in, in full measure to all of God's people. The resurrection of the body and I don't want to be flippant here, but is it going to be that, you know, some people's bodies are completely raised and other people's only partly? That, 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 it's just inconceivable. And so when we think about benefits of being believers in Christ and being part of the kingdom, we realize that many of these benefits are all or nothing. And if you're in the kingdom, it's all. And if you're not in the kingdom, it's nothing. And that, that seems to be a, a lesson here as well. But at the same time, this equality is just the problem of the parable. It's what bothers us about the parable. This 
equal outcome for unequal work is the unsettling aspect of this parable. And I think we instinctively side with the first group in their objection. They, they have a good point there. It doesn't correspond to how the labor market, we think it should work. We have this sense of fair play, e equal pay for, for equal work. But that's just the point. That's just the point. The kingdom of God is not a labor market. The kingdom of God doesn't give exact recompense for services rendered. The kingdom of God is the gift of the king. It's not like a labor market, even though this parable is using the labor market as the parable. That's the, that's the difficult thing here. It takes something that we know and we think we know how it functions, and then it, it turns it on, it on its head. So we realize it is like it, but it's not like it. It's the gift. You see, getting into the kingdom is not about how long or how hard you work. Even though your work is important and essential and necessary, it's about being granted access by the king. The king says, I give what is mine to whomever I want. That's what it's about. Now, there's a difficulty here, another difficulty, if you will, about assigning roles to the first and the last groups. Who are these groups? Whom do they represent? And um, the landowner, I think it's clear enough that the landowner represents God. And then we have this vineyard imagery. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah 27, for example, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 10, what is the vineyard? The vineyard is Israel. But even identifying God and some reference to Israel, it's still difficult to identify who the last group is, who the first group is, and, and let alone the middle groups. But if we just focus on the first and the last, there have been various ideas about who these groups are. Uh, some have suggested that they are the 12 disciples. Those are the first ones in. And then there are later disciples. And the 12, they're the ones, I mean, Peter, Peter said it one time to Jesus. He blurted out, Lord, we have given up everything to follow you. We've given up everything. They, they bore the brunt of, of the work. And, and then others came in later. That's a suggestion. Another suggestion is Israel and the Gentiles. Israel, talk about bearing the, the heat of the day. Israel, generation after generation, century after century, they, 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 they were under God's rule and, 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 and more or less serving God with a, a spotty record. But they, were, they, they bore the brunt of, of much of the burden. They were the ones who 400 years were slaves in Egypt. And then the Gentiles just kind of waltz in at the end and, and go to the, the front of the line. Uh, that's, that's an interpretation. Another interpretation is lifelong Christians and deathbed converts. Those who all their lives know Jesus. They, they were raised in the faith and they had that blessing. And all their lives they have given themselves to serve the Lord in his kingdom. And then there is someone who has lived a terrible life. And at the very end, insincerity doesn't happen often, but, but sometimes does. We have the thief on the cross as the one example. 
places faith in Jesus, and then all his sins are wiped away and enters into the kingdom. And, and, and all of these, all of these have some appeal to them, and, and, and I think that neither of them is exactly right, but I think the parable can cover all of them and other ones as well. Any situation in which we tend to say, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair for the Gentiles to go to the front of the line after the Jews have suffered so much. That's not fair for the deathbed convert to be, to be wafted into the presence of Christ after the life he's lived when, when others have served him all their life. Anytime we're tempted to say, that's not fair, the parable is for us. The parable is for us because that's the point of this parable. It's not about fairness. It's about generosity. And when we get on that, that train of fairness, we realize that we've gotten out of the line of, of how the kingdom of God functions. It's about generosity. The first will be last, and the last first. But at the same time, all receive the benefits in full. That's the great thing. Nobody went away empty-handed here. Everyone had what he needed at the end of the day. The last were first, the first were last, and everybody had what they needed. If we still, if we still want to insist on fairness, then we should read the next verses in Matthew right after this parable. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, verse 17, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Talk about not fair. This is how Jesus instituted the kingdom. It's how he brought it into this world. By suffering the, the least fair thing that had ever happened in the history of the universe. The Son of Man. If anybody should be first, it's the Son of Man. But the Son of Man, what place did he take on our behalf? He took the last place. He took the place that we deserve. He took that, that place on the cross for us. The first became last for us. It was told to me as a real story by a preacher a long time ago. I've tried to track it down. Can't find any trace of it. I don't know if this really happened. But the story went like this. It was an elders meeting and the conversation got rather heated. And the elders were divided, the elders of a church. And it got louder and louder, and then one of the men stood up and indignantly says, I'm not going to put up with this. I know when people are trying to take advantage of me. I have my rights. And as the story goes, there was an old Scotsman there an elder as well, who was a little hard of hearing. And he said, what'd you say? And the man repeated, I have my rights. He said, oh, 
I thought that's what you said. Your rights have you. The only rights you have, and he wasn't, he wasn't being abusive here. He was speaking theologically, and he said to him, the only right you have is the right to go to hell. And then he said this, Jesus didn't come to assert his rights, but to take our wrongs. And as the story goes, the man sat down and said, forgive me, brothers. Settle it however you like. You see, thanks be to God, his kingdom is not fair. It's not fair. It's much, much, much better than fair. Jesus came to take our wrongs and give us his right before God. That's not fair. That's so much better than fair. Don't insist on what's fair. Don't be foolish and insist on what's fair. But rather, receive what's merciful and kind and good and gracious and generous by faith in Jesus the one who came to take our wrongs and to make us part of his kingdom right before God. Let's pray. Our God, you have built into us your law and we have a sense of what's fair and what's not fair. And we thank you for that sense. But then your kingdom breaks in and, and challenges us. And Lord, we recognize that at the end of the day, we don't want what's fair. We don't want what's coming to us. We want what Jesus has for us. Lord, I, I pray that all hearing this today would enter the kingdom by faith receiving it as a gift from the king. And that once in the kingdom, that we would go about our labor, labor without grumbling, without envy, without looking over at what others are doing and how easy or hard it is for them. And that we would be so amazed that you would give the blessings of your kingdom to people like us, that we wouldn't waste time worrying about how hard or easy other people's lives are. Lord, remind us again that your kingdom is about generosity, about grace, about mercy, about love. And then send us into your vineyard with grateful hearts, having been filled up with all that we need as generous gifts from you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.